Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella recently observed that every organization in every industry will need to infuse technology into every business process and function so that they can do more with less. But he wasn't talking about working harder or longer. He was talking about the need to apply technology to augment and amplify what we're doing across the business in order to be more resilient and more innovative. On this episode of the New Work Podcast, we'll explore the role of artificial intelligence, automation, and even augmented and virtual reality in the new work experience. In part one, I'll be speaking with Microsoft Corporate Vice President Jared Spataro, who will offer perspective on shifting employee and employer expectations and the role of AI in helping to bridge the gap between the two. Then, after a short break, I'll be joined by industry analyst Josh Burson, who will dig deeper into the growing role of AI, machine learning, and augmented and virtual reality in improving the hybrid workplace. My first guest is Jared Spataro, Corporate VP of Modern Work and Business Applications with Microsoft. Jared's two teams are dedicated to helping every person and organization adapt to the new world of work, using research to help predict and shape what the future of work will look like across industries, while also delivering new products and features within the Microsoft cloud that enable everyone to thrive, which sounds good. Welcome, Jared. Great to be here, Martin. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So, Jared, here we are, more than what? Hard to remember now, isn't it? But more than two years, I think, into hybrid work with no sign at all that I can see that the world will ever return to the pre-2020 times. And we're seeing, I think, a big divide between employees and employers. The research your team has been doing is fascinating, I think. Uh, Can you provide maybe just a few insights into how employee needs are shifting and what leaders need to do to respond to the new realities of work so that employees and, of course, as a result of their businesses can thrive? And also, while you're at it, what's Microsoft doing to address these emerging needs? Boy, there's a lot to unpack there, Martin. I'm happy to. Yeah, but yeah so much has happened. I mean, at this point, you know, just about three years from the time that everyone was sent home to work. If I take a step back, there are some things that our telemetry has been teaching us that have been fascinating for me. First off, if you look across the world on average, the workday span has elongated by about 45 minutes. So that's just simply the, the marker that measures first log on to a Microsoft service to last log off of that service. So we've seen that span elongated. When we go in, though, and and talk with people in what we call that interview or qualitative-based research, what we hear is that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, everything they're doing in the minutes in between those is work-related. We've seen the rise of real flexibility. And when you talk about employees' needs, you also should talk about their wants and what they realize they want, you know, new things. This idea of flexibility really is going to be the durable concept that comes out of the, the shared experience that we've all had. In fact, flexibility shows up so much that we now pick up in our telemetry what we call a three-peak workday in some parts around the world. There's always been a peak of activity in the morning, a peak of activity in the afternoon. Now we're seeing a peak of activity in the evening. We'll call it between 9 and 11 p.m. And again, what people will tell us is, you know what, I eat breakfast with my kids. I take a little bit of a break, and then I just apply you know, that work I need to do to the end of my day. We just see people configuring their days in totally different and new ways. Now, here's what's most fascinating for me is then when we have started to look at, well, how do people think about the benefits, the pros and the cons of what's going on? 
we find that the, the vast majority of employees around the world, in fact, in a recent survey that we did of over 20,000 people, 87% of employees report that they can now be productive at work no matter where they work. That the, the idea of being flexible and adapting to circumstances and, and different physical locations, it's, it's just something they know how to do at this point. But on the other hand, when we talk to leaders around the world, business leaders, we find that 85% of those leaders tell us that this shift to a more flexible set of working patterns leaves them wondering, scratching their head, if their teams are really as productive as they need to be. So we see that as a big tension that is starting to, to really pull at the fabric of what you call kind of the employer-employee relationship is, man, employees feel like they've been giving it up now for at least three years and have found a way through. Employers are wondering, are you really doing enough? Is this really working out for all of us? So there's a tension there to be managed. When you look at um, people working at home or coming into an office, we've been awfully fascinated in that. You know, how often do, do they come in? In North America, at least the data shows us that people are in about half the time, 2.5 days a week, roughly on average. That's about how much many companies are asking them to come in. But we wanted to know why people come in. We asked them all about, you know, cozy office spaces, big monitors, comfortable chairs. It turns out the, the reason people come in are for each other, for the other people around them. And most interestingly, it wasn't the bosses or the high brass that bring people in. They want to come in to see the people who they work with every day. And that leads us to then ask, you know, how do you get in on the same day as those people that you care about a lot? And that leads to kind of some new technologies that we're working on. So to round out uh, the answer, you know, are we interested? Are we working? Are we focused on these problems? Absolutely. Microsoft 365 is kind of our broad answer uh, with the Teams app being a big part of how we help companies all around the world. On top of Teams, we built some interesting solutions, including one that we call Microsoft Viva. It's an employee experience platform that really builds on top of what Teams adds for things like meetings and allows you to really start to have connections between people that are persistent even when they're not you know, necessarily engaged in an online meeting. And then finally, we're doing some really cool work with a product that we call Microsoft Places. This is all about how we help you to coordinate when you'll be in different physical locations, help you to use your digital space and your physical space more efficiently. So as you can imagine, the last three years, we've been busy, you know, both researching and trying to come up with good solutions. Yeah, I love all that stuff about wants versus needs and the the social aspect. We're we're really figuring this stuff out as we go along, I guess, to a certain extent, and and that's some really useful data. But look, it wouldn't be a, a technology related podcast if I didn't ask you a little bit about AI and automation and what you're up to. Microsoft, I know, is leaning hard into AI and automation across many, if not all, its solutions and services. However. AI still has some negative connotations, I think, in the world. For those who are still maybe on the skeptical side, what would you say to them? Well, let me provide some context, then mark a moment, and then respond to the question. The context is, I really believe that 2023 is, is going to be the year where AI goes mainstream. We've seen AI bubbling up in various aspects of our lives now for many years. But this year, I think it's going to be one of those aha moments for most of us, where we really see it come into a context or a scenario and think, man, that makes a big difference. Microsoft itself um, is a big investor in AI, always has been. We have a very special relationship right now with OpenAI, invested over a billion dollars. And that investment is now starting to yield fruit, in particular with these what we call large language models that have been getting a lot of press over the last couple of months. Large language models essentially allow us to, to create 
a service that, as you've probably seen from ChatGPT and some of the things that have been written up about ChatGPT, almost seem to have a, a deep understanding of the world around us and can answer questions. And that gets even better when you ground that understanding in, in data about you or about your company. So now to your question, you know, uh, what would I say to the skeptics? I would say, hey, I get it. We've been talking about this for a very long time and oftentimes AI disappoints. But this is one of those moments where I think you can go in and use some of the models that have now um, been made available to the public through uh, OpenAI's different services, things like ChatGPT, uh, things like Dolly 2, and start to see the not just the promise, but the fruit of what is called generative AI. And what's most fascinating to me is we've always thought that AI would be really good at some of the more, I don't know, you might call it me mechanistic aspects of, of our lives. How do we automate things? You know, How do we do things that are a little bit easier to turn into almost like formal reasoning. But now we're seeing that the places that may be disrupted first actually are those we thought would be disrupted last. And those are the creative dimensions of our lives. So things like generating images, things like creating text, things like doing you know, really sophisticated summaries in natural language of things that are observed or things that are seen or recorded all of that's going to be uh, pretty amazing for us. So as we think about what can we do, you know, we're at this moment where we want to bring the AI to the people. We want to make it very accessible in the types of interfaces and experiences that they're already accustomed to every day. I don't have more to, to share or announce at this time, but stay tuned um, because as we, we really see this open AI investment bear fruit, we just think that there's so much that we can do as we bring it into these experiences that literally billions of people use. Yeah, so you're you're calling it uh, 2023 year of uh, AI. Fantastic, great, uh, strong opinion, which we all love here. Um, but tell me, let's drill down on that a little bit and tell me, how are you determining where to deploy uh, AI in a way that has the most impact for not just employees, but also for your customers and specific to employee experience and new ways of working? This is, um, this is one of those things that I would say is a matter of, uh, really looking at the problem space. And, and the way we think about it is this type of work is best done by diving into a domain and working directly with people who have problems that need solutions. So rather than sitting in a laboratory or rather than sitting in a conference room and saying, boy, I think it'd be great for this, we do our best to get out with customers and say, where are the pain points today? Now, the background that I'll give you that I think is, is so important for our listeners here is I don't think we'd be in the same position to introduce AI or to be thinking about how to introduce AI if we, if we wouldn't have experienced this collective pandemic over the last three years. What I mean by that is in the, in the context of the business world, almost every human interaction has now been, been turned into a digitally mediated interaction. In other words, what used to be just a set of words that I would say and would never be captured, now is a part of meetings that are broadcast all around the world just as a matter of course. It makes me laugh to think about the thing that I was trying my hardest pre-pandemic to do, and that was to get people to turn on their camera in Teams meetings. We just couldn't do it. It wasn't a part of the culture. The tech was there, but it just wasn't a part of the culture. And now, not only can we get people to turn on uh, their camera in a Teams meeting, it seems as though almost every meeting that people have ends up being a Teams meeting because some member of the meeting is not physically there with you. So with all of that information being digitally mediated, digitally available, then that means, wait a second, now we have an incredible, like a vast amount of data to reason over. And with that data, we can start to provide some really interesting value to people. So that gets to how do we choose? Well, we're looking for highly differentiated 
scenarios. We're looking for places where we not only can take something like a large language model, but we can also ground that in what we know about an individual, uh, what we know about an organization. And for us, the, the starting point for this is what we have historically called in a rather geeky way, the Microsoft graph. When you use our Microsoft services uh, in, a, in a commercial context, in a business context, we keep a record of what's happening within this Microsoft graph. All of that data is the property of the company who's paying the bills. So we don't have any questions about ownership or privacy. It's, you know, at this point, we've worked that, that all out over the years. But that graph is like oil. It's incredible. When you ground an AI model, with data about my calendar or who I interact with or the last meeting I went to or things that I'm messaging people about, you start to get some truly magical experiences. So we work with customers is kind of part one of the, of the answer. And then part two is we look for differentiated scenarios where that Microsoft graph data can deliver something that nobody else in the world can. Now, Jared, I know that trust is going to be such an important uh, phenomenon. Uh, when we're thinking about AI. And, and I know you use some phrases here, meaningful innovation and responsibility. They're sort of two of the big Microsoft principles regarding AI, I think. Uh, can you elaborate maybe a little on, on what you mean by those phrases? Sure. I'll start with this um, with this important, I think, disclaimer to say, because this is going to be such a big year for AI, you know, 2023, the year of AI, we don't think we have everything worked out. So we wouldn't say by saying meaningful innovation or responsibility or trust and we've got some principles that are that are so clear and so durable that they've solved the problems but they do represent conceptual areas and so let me explain each one of those we'll start with that meaningful innovation um, for 30 years in Microsoft research we've been doing what we call really cutting edge AI work this is work on vision speech language decision making custom machine learning that you train up based on data what we call localized or smaller data sets. But what we really try to do, again, is not make this ivory tower an ivory tower exercise, but instead make sure that we're getting down with customers to solve problems. So for us, this idea of meaningful innovation is let's just make sure that as we innovate, each of our innovations is really well-grounded, founded um, on a principle of a problem that needs solving that, that isn't just a local principle, it has some sort of global application across the world. And we try really hard to make sure that um, the Microsoft research arm is plugged into this great set of customers that we have across industries. So that's what we mean by meaningful innovation. When it comes to responsibility, uh, we feel like Microsoft runs on trust. It's one of the big differentiators for us that our commercial customers can trust us, that we are transparent with everything from data to policy, that we participate with them in developing those things, that we engage in very deep and meaningful ways. Uh, with the governments in the various countries that we work in. Like all of this is a part of what we've developed over the decades. And for us, responsibility is about bringing all those things together. Uh, we want to make sure that AI systems are transparent in terms of you know, how we've created them, how we've trained them. Uh, we want to make sure that they function as, as intended. And when there are problems, there are easy ways to report those problems back. So we were, as an example, one of the first major technology companies to call for a thoughtful government regulation on things like facial recognition technology. And we want to continue to engage with governments because we feel like governments are really the, the man-made institutions that are meant to think long and hard about the policies associated with the use of these technologies. So in, a, in an interesting way, I find Microsoft often will call for regulation and engage with regulators because we think that you know that gives the voice to the people as opposed to just... Uh, a, a company or a group of companies who's making decisions on behalf of people all over the world. 
Jared, as we said uh, further up, this is such an amazing uh, cycle of change we're going through with tech, but also the the way we all work, and we're we're all going to be tracking it nonstop all through and uh, trying to figure it out. And you did a great job outlining a lot of those issues. Well, thanks for having me, Martin. Been our pleasure. Thanks so much. Stay tuned for my chat with industry analyst Josh Burson about the role of AI, AR, and VR in employee experience and the new world of work. A reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Adobe and Microsoft. Visit thenewwork.cio.com for more episodes and compelling content. I'm joined now by Josh Burson, Global Industry Analyst and CEO of the Josh Burson Company, where he oversees a team of analysts and advisors who support and guide HR organizations from around the world. Josh also founded the Josh Burson Academy, a professional development academy for HR and learning professionals from more than 130 countries. Josh's new book, Irresistible, The Seven Secrets of the World's Most Enduring Employee-Focused Organizations, is a groundbreaking guide to building a company that thrives based on interviews with innovative leaders at the world's best-run organizations. Welcome along, Josh. Thank you, Martin. It's great to be here. Josh, everyone's very excited right now about AI and machine learning. I wonder, with hybrid working being so high up the agenda of enterprises, to what extent is that acting as a catalyst for more adoption of AI? It's a huge catalyst because some very high percentage of the workers in most companies are not in the office. They're communicating virtually. Uh, They have stress or productivity issues because of the hybrid work environment. And so we want these systems to be more intelligent, more suggestive, uh, more recommendation oriented, easier to use, smarter, (laughs) whatever word you want to use, because that's where people are spending their whole day. So this is given birth. Plus, there's so much data now being collected um, about communications and facial expressions and locations and moving between places. All that data is stored. So AI is just going to have a huge impact on the productivity of the workforce in this new world of hybrid work. Yeah. Now, now I think it's still fair to say, maybe you disagree, that AI still has some uh, negative connotations out there. What would you say are some of the technical implications that CIOs and IT teams need to ensure they get it right when it comes to AI and machine learning? AI um, actually does some amazing things. And I know people are a little bit afraid of it. But maybe we should stop calling it AI because I think the name AI maybe is intimidating. What what the AI systems do is many things. um, And most of them are black boxes, by the way. So the CIO rarely can get in there and understand why it's doing what it's doing, to be honest. That that will come over time. But uh, my experience with the AI systems is they're very positive. Microsoft Viva Insights, for example, Um, is intelligent enough to tell you you're spending too much time in meetings or that meeting was too long or people in that meeting weren't paying attention because they were doing other things Um, or your uh, participation in internal meetings is 50% greater than everybody else on your team. So, you know, maybe you shouldn't be sitting through so many internal meetings, you know, et cetera. Um, The second big use case for AI is coaching people to interact 
more positively online. So there's a set of tools that look at the conversations you're having with different people and the metadata of those conversations. And they can send you a report that says, you know, you have a team of 10 people, 80% of your conversations were with these two people. Um, you know, 10% were with this person and the rest of the 10% were with all the other people. You might want to be aware of that, that you're not paying a, that much attention to, you know, most of the people in your team. Um, and they can even go beyond that and infer from the level of communication back and forth, the tone of your words. They can even infer from that through the tone of your words and the natural language processing in the conversations that with this person, you're very developmental, but with that person, you're very judgmental. So maybe, uh, you know, that question that you ask could be asked in a better way. So there's all sorts of really sophisticated, uh, positive things coming out of this um, for individuals, for managers, for teammates, for workers. And then, of course, for HR and IT, um, because there's such a massive data set being collected, uh, one of the big areas of study going on in um, the virtual work is called organizational network analysis, um, where you can basically look at a whole team or a whole business unit and say, um, well, this underperforming part of the business unit is spending too much time talking to their managers. Maybe that's a micromanager, whereas this highly performing business unit is spending less time talking to their manager. So maybe there's maybe the micromanagement in that business area is is slowing people down or getting in the way. So um, all sorts of things like that. I don't think there's too much negative to this. I, I know, you know, most employers are going to worry that the vendors uh, may not be paying attention, but 99% um, of the people I talk to really appreciate this. By the way, one more thing here. You know, the biggest issue companies have today is burnout, is well-being, is employee experience. So, you know, if you're at the other end of a computer network and you're maybe talking to somebody on the phone or online and they don't have their camera on, you don't really know how they feel. I mean, you don't really know what's going on. And if they're thinking about quitting or they're having a hard time or having some problems at home or they're low on money or whatever it may be, they're not going to tell you, most likely not. So if these systems can give you signals about employees that are um, out of sorts for some reason that help you get under the covers of um, you know, some of these issues, that's great. Switching tracks a little bit from AI to AR and VR, before COVID, I think it's fair to say there was tepid interest in using AR and VR technologies in the enterprise, but new post-COVID workplace models seem to be changing that mindset. What role do you see, Josh? Uh, what role do you see avatars and virtual spaces playing to help disperse teams engage and collaborate more effectively? Well, I am a technology skeptic. Even though I'm a technologist, I always wait. Most of these things don't turn out to be so great in the beginning, right. and then later they're way better than you ever expected. Um, uh, the two applications that are really successful today for the metaverse or VR, one is training. Corporate training is really seeing high ROI from VR. Many, many uh, simulations or dangerous conditions or real world training experiences, how to, go, how to climb into a manhole, uh, what to do if the first person shooter comes to the store, how to handle Black Friday, 
how to unscrew this bolt in a oil drip derrick. Um, you know, you can't do that either by, you have to either be there and simulate the real experience, which is very expensive. And you can't possibly do that for every employee or you can use VR. So VR as is proven successful in these things. It's being used in retail. It's used, being used in manufacturing and oil and gas and energy utilities. Um, it's very high value. The second area that is currently starting to pan out for the real, you know, metaverse avatars and virtual spaces is recruiting because recruiting is a brand building experience for companies where they want to show a job candidate what it's really like to work here and, you know, answer all sorts of random questions that the candidate has um, about the job and the company and the pay and the rewards and, you know, who works here and what is it like, et cetera. Um, you know, if the recruiter does that over the phone, they can do, you know, a reasonable job of it, but there's only so much they can do and it's expensive. So what companies are starting to do is build virtual um, candidate experiences, especially for young people that like to play around on video games. And they can go in and visit a Starbucks store or visit an Amazon warehouse or visit an AT&T store and say, what's it really like to work here? What are the people like? What am I going to have to do? Um, what does it feel like? Oh, let's see. There's a little room over there with the boss. Let's see what he's like. And those actually are working. I've um, heard companies tell me that uh, for a certain category of candidates, it's very successful on bringing people in who maybe um, a, a didn't want to apply for the job at all, or B, um, you know, we're just too time consuming to bring on board uh, because they weren't quite sure if they wanted to take the job. And it's really hard to hire right now. You know, the unemployment rate's below 3.7% or so. So, um, so I think that's an application. Beyond that, there are companies trying to use VR for internal meetings, um, town halls, the equivalent of the virtual town hall. I've heard some good stories about that, but that has not gone mainstream yet. And I think that will be a third one that will probably be a big use case. Yeah. As you allude to now, it's not a purely a technology play and nothing is. But um, speaking to that, how should HR and IT be collaborating to align some of these emerging technologies with the desired business outcomes? And, and why is that HR, IT partnership, Nexus, call it what you will, so important? Well, um, on the first part with collaboration and meeting tools, obviously IT is, you know, that's central to their job. Um, in terms of VR and AR and metaverse, um, you know, the partnership is essentially HR is the business buyer and the business use case owner. IT is the technology evaluator, technology inf integrator, um, manager of security and standards creator. So they have to work together. Uh, if you let the HR department buy whatever they want, God knows what's going to happen. It won't work. It won't be connected. It won't have single sign-on. Uh, it could have you know, data insecurity or data inconsistencies, maybe it won't scale in the network, a hundred things could go wrong. If you let the IT buy it without the HR people being involved, they might buy something that's really cool from a technology standpoint, but when the HR people start using it, they say, hey, you know, I can't roll this out to the employees. The employees can't use this. It's not good enough for them. Because ultimately, um, in both of these cases, uh, VR, AR, and collaboration in AI, if the employees or candidates don't like it, it's not doing you any good. You're actually just reducing productivity or perhaps 
hurting yourself. So HR is the ombudsman of the uh, the user in a sense. Yeah, makes sense. Um, Josh, we, we could speak all day, of course. It's such a broad and emerging topic. But I just want to wrap up by asking you a nice broad question here, which is what excites you most about the opportunities that some of these newer technologies open up for new and emerging workplace models? Well, I mean, the whole thing excites me because I think hybrid work is a new model. Uh, it's not dragging people back to the office, and it's not telling people you're going to work at home for the rest of your life. It's both mixed together, uh, and it improves productivity. It improves well-being. It gives people more flexible lives, and companies can scale faster. They can have part-time workers, contractors brought into the system. By the way, one of the things I didn't mention is a massive um, emerging part of this space is the frontline or deskless worker, people that don't have computers but have phones or kiosks. They need to get into these systems too. And that part of the market is growing like crazy, but it's newer. And some of the tools you know, were not designed for it. Um, and so you bring them in and they get productivity tools. They can schedule their work hours better and faster. Uh, they can get their pay in real time. Uh, they can quickly get uh, access to a manager who's online or not online schedule a meeting. Many, many things can be done using technology. I mean, one just one industry example, in the healthcare industry, we have a massive shortage of nurses, clinical workers. And nurses are very busy people doing many, many things. They don't sit in front of a computer very much, if at all. So you can't give them some tool that requires them to log in and poke around all day. Um, they'll do it for training, but that's about it. Um, so they need to do scheduling. They need to do. Uh, they need to take care of patient records. They need to take care of patient medications. Where's all that data going to go? That's time out of their day that they really should be spending with patients directly. If that works well through whatever virtual system you have, you've just saved your company a lot of money. You've reduced the number of nurses or reduced the impact of nursing turnover, and you've provided much better patient care. So you know, take that same idea and think about it in a Starbucks store, an AT&T store, a grocery store, uh, you know, a truck driver. These things are, you know, really changing the way these jobs work and giving people much more opportunities to be productive and make the right decisions um, thanks to AI and software. Yeah, as I said, Josh, we could go on forever. This stuff is changing so fast now. We're learning so many lessons as we go along. But uh, for piquing our interest and uh, giving so, so many great examples of what's happening right now, Josh Burson, thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. We've learned a lot from Jared and Josh about how AI and other emerging technologies are impacting new work models. If 2023 really turns out to be the year of AI, CIOs have a lot to look forward to and a lot to consider for their organizations. For all the episodes in this podcast series and other resources on this important topic, visit thenewwork.cio.com. For CIO, Adobe and Microsoft, I'm Martin Feach. Thanks for listening.
This podcast has been produced by IDG Communications Incorporated, doing business at Foundry, in association with its sponsors, Adobe and Microsoft.